Father, we thank you for our time together that we spend over the most important issues of life, the issues that involve eternity. And as we study your word, we understand your character, how you love people, how you deal with them, what you think, how people have reacted and responded to you in the past, and what we can learn from them. And as Paul tells us, all these things were written for our benefit. I pray, Lord, that we would be benefited by them. Help us to learn. Help us to be changed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt saying, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time, according to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. Growing up in the Heitzig home was exciting. I had three older brothers, and that always with no sisters, just three older brothers. So we were always kind of dividing up teams and fighting. And the mealtimes were rarely leisurely. They were always kind of uh, rambunctious, a lot of energy. A few highlights stand out. I'll remember the time when I had practiced with a napkin and knives fork, spoon underneath the napkin and other things. I learned how to pull out the napkin real quick and keep the utensil stationary. And I thought, you know, I, I got pretty good at it. So I thought, the next step. And I, I've seen it done on television is to have the plates and everything on the table and do it with the tablecloth. So I Mom put a tablecloth on one night, and she had plates on, and she had forks, and I said, watch this, and before she could say stop, I put all of the stuff that was on the table on the floor <laughs> in pieces. Now, I was the youngest, and there was a time in our growth when as teenagers we liked to eat, and uh, not that I stopped liking to eat, but... There was a time when the meal was competition. And my brother Bob, man, he could eat. And I remember the time we sat down for a chicken dinner, and by the time we had, he didn't even wait for us. By the time we had all sat down to eat, he had been at the table and he almost single-handedly finished the whole chicken by himself and left like a leg for like the three of us. That's why I like reading about the Passover, because Passover was a leisurely meal that included everyone. It was a meal that took the children of Israel into the midnight hour. The family would be gathered around. The wife would be praised out of the book of Proverbs. The children would ask, why is this night different from all other nights? They would dress up, and they would go through the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. They would recall all that God had done and they would recline, just like people are up here reclining uh, for a Bible study. They would recline at the meal. They wouldn't sit upright and mom would say, you know, one hand on the lap and one hand on the. They didn't do that. They hung out. And uh, if you do go to Israel, we plan on having a Roman dinner one of the nights where you'll lie down almost. You'll recline on a Roman triclinium and they'll bring you food, course after course, and you'll just dig it. <laughs> well, this is the only recorded time that we know about the children of Israel celebrating Passover in the desert, in the wilderness. They may have done it more often, but we have no record of that. We know they kept it in Exodus 12. That's the first Passover when they were coming out of Egypt. Then the second one is recorded here. They're camped at Mount Sinai. They're about to leave. And the third one 
is in Joshua chapter 5. And seemingly they didn't keep it during the years between this one and the time they entered into the promised land. Passover is one of the most striking and clearest pictures of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. As they would take the blood of the Lamb and they would smear it upon the lintels and the doorpost of the Israeli homes, thus it would form a cross as the blood was applied. And I think that unless you understand the institution of Passover, it's very difficult for you to understand the atonement upon the cross. Because there is so much symbolism that a Jew would understand. He would see that it's predicted in the Old Testament. The life of the Jew revolved around a lamb that would be sacrificed. Their future was determined by the lamb that was applied, the blood was applied to the house. And God saw that lamb and passed over. And we see hints of this throughout the Bible, all the way back in the book of Genesis, I believe, in chapter 22, when a father takes his only begotten son and almost sacrifices him on the same hill Jesus died a few thousand years later, Abraham. And the angel stops him and says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. I think that's prophetic. Then we come to Isaiah chapter 53, and it talks about the Messiah. He is led as a lamb before his shears. He is silent. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And for a Jew, the imagery of the Passover lamb would come in view as he would say this. Then there's the Apostle John who speaks of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, not only in his gospel, but in the book of Revelation. And as you read the New Testament, you get the same idea that our life revolves around a lamb. And a lamb at the Passover was simply predictive of the Lamb of God who would come. Well, they hadn't kept it. And here they are camped at Mount Sinai, and God tells them to keep the Passover. It says, in the first month, verse 1, the first month of the second year after they had come up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you were to check in chapter 1, you would see that then this is earlier than where we begin the book. Now, let me just quickly go over this. Chapter 7, 8, and 9 are not in chronological order. In fact, they take place before the census takes place in chapter 1. And this would correspond to the last part of Exodus, the 40th chapter, where they're gathered together, the commandments have been given, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and before the census is taken, they're commanded to keep the Passover. So that's the chronological order. Verse 4, so Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight. Relish this, enjoy it while it's here, because in a couple chapters you will see they go from strict obedience to grumbling and complaining and disobedience. Moses said, you ought to keep the Passover, and so they kept the Passover on the 14th day. They were to keep the Passover so that they would remember a very important thing. The important thing is that God didn't save them because of their good looks or their good deeds, but God saved them based upon the sacrifice of a lamb. Remember back in Exodus chapter 12, God said, eat the Passover after it's killed, of course. Take the lamb's blood and put it on the lintels and doorposts. And when I see the, the, the blood, I'll pass over. So they could have obeyed up to a point and still been killed in judgment. They could have eaten the lamb, gone through the ritual of Passover, said all the prayers, and decided not to go through the bloody mess of smearing that stuff all over your house. It's hard to clean blood off a house. And they would have been judged. God said, I have to see the blood. They had to apply the truth to their own life, to their own family, to their own house. Now, if they were to say, well, I'm a son of Abraham, they would have been killed. 
the Lamb's blood must be seen by God so that he could pass over. Now that's a narrow way. The only way they could be saved at the Passover was God seeing the blood of the Lamb. Now there's, there's people today who look at Christianity as being narrow. You tell them the truth about the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the, the whole world. And they go, well, that's, that's too narrow. Well, that's too bad. There is one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said, enter into the narrow gate, for narrow is the way. And very few enter therein. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many enter therein. It was narrow even for the children of Israel. They had to go through this ritual of the Passover. So they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, We became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? Now, there was a stipulation in the law. If you touch a dead person, you become ceremonially unclean. And the only way to get out of that is to go through a ritual. And that could take a period of days even. Well, maybe you're on your way to the Passover and somebody suddenly dies next to you. Here's this emergency case. We don't know exactly what happened, but hey, we're defiled by a corpse. Maybe somebody dropped dead next to them. Or something happened that caused by death a ceremonial defilement. Now, they don't want to be kept out of the Passover. They have a narrow window to celebrate the Passover. And so it really is a problem. Now, I love Moses' response in the next verse. Verse 8, Moses said, Well, stand still, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. It's interesting. God hadn't told Moses what to do. He was so elaborate up to this point. He gave him an elaborate blueprint of the tabernacle. He gave him an elaborate idea of how the feasts are to be celebrated, elaborate washings for the priests and the priesthood and sacrifices and what meal offering and how much flour and exactly what to do. And yet, God hasn't told him everything. And he doesn't know what to do. So he says, well, just stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. What I like about this is that he waits on God. He doesn't have a board meeting. He doesn't say, now we have to vote on this issue, gentlemen, and have a five-year plan for the nation of Israel. Um, uh, according to Robert's Rules of Orders, Aaron, uh, you know, uh, maybe you'd like to offer the first vote on this. Uh, all in favor say aye. He didn't know what to say. And what I like about Moses is he didn't come up with a false answer by presuming upon God, saying, well, he just said, you know what, I don't know. I think that's wonderful humility. When you don't know the answer to say, I don't know. I find myself giving that answer a lot. People ask me a lot of questions. And there's a few that I know the answer to, but there's so many more that I have to say, I don't know. So he says, stand still. Wait, I, I, I don't know. Let's, I've got to hear what the Lord will command. The scripture says, Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. And here's a good indication of it. Problems and difficulties are to be taken to the Lord. Why is it that God is often the last person consulted? Why is it that our attitude is, there's nothing left to do but pray? Why isn't that your first recourse? Why is that a last-ditch effort? Why is it so bad to ask God? Why do we ask everybody else first? A friend? A spouse? The church? Or we'll go buy a book on the subject? But we'll fail to start where we ought to start. Ask the Lord. Consult Him. And some might be pessimistic. Well, God doesn't speak like He spoke then. I don't think people listen like they listened then. The Bible says you have not because why? You ask not. I think God's up there sometimes kind of like, hello, I've got the answer. 
I'd like to tell you, would you ask me? You'd be surprised what God... And I believe God speaks to us. I believe God can speak to your heart. God is creative in the way he can give you the answer. And if we'd wait on God, the answers would come. And so God hadn't told Moses everything yet. But he's about to in the next verse. Now I think again we have here a great picture of prayer. Prayer is not instructing God. It's not counseling God. It's not trying to get God's will in line with our will. Prayer is getting our will in line with his will. It's getting God's will done on earth rather than cajoling God to get my will done in heaven, talking God into something. And if I pray long enough, God will change his mind. And if, if he doesn't, then I'll fast to show God I'm really serious, so I'll twist his arm. What a horrible way to think of God. Prayer's a partnership. I think a lot of time God will withhold information so that we'll have to trust him one step at a time. Daily trusting God. There's a beautiful example of this with Abraham. Abraham had God and his buddies over for dinner one night. They came to the tent. It says, as the Lord was going to Sodom to judge Sodom, he said, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I am about to do? seeing that through Abraham all the nations of the earth are about to be blessed. And so he says to Abraham, Abraham's listening to this whole thing. He says, I, the cry of Sodom has come before me, and I'm going to go check it out to see if all that I've heard about it is true. Now he knew exactly, but he's saying this for Abraham's sake. I'm going to find out if it's true, and if so, I'm going to judge that place. And it says, and Abraham still stood before God, as if to say, I'm not finished yet. Here God says, I'm about to go to Sodom. He reveals it to Abraham. God's going to judge Sodom. And so Abraham speaks up. He says, now, Lord, let me ask you a question before you go. What if you were to find 50 righteous people in Sodom? Would you judge them? Far be it from the Lord of the earth to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Surely if you found 50 righteous in the city, you'd spare it, right? God said, you're right. If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the city for 50. Abraham said, good, great. Um, listen, I don't want to be presumptuous or anything, but uh, what if you found five less than 50, say 45? Would you spare the city for 45? Yes, I would, Abraham. Hey, that's great. Now, you know, who am I to speak? I'm a man of dust and ashes, but... What if you found 40 righteous? And the conversation is humorous. It goes down to 10. What if you were to find 10 righteous? God said, if I find 10 righteous, I will spare the city. Now, God's whole design all along was to be merciful to Sodom and bring out the righteous, separating the righteous from the wicked. For God's pattern is that he does not judge his people along with the ungodly. God delivers first. And God said he would. But God was revealing to Abraham at this last point so that Abraham could be in partnership with God in prayer. We are co-laborers with Christ. And sometimes God will withhold information and he'll reveal it while we're in prayer with him so that we might be partners together. So Moses didn't have all the information, so he prays. He says, stand still and see. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the children of Israel. I like to look at prayer sort of like a kid helping his dad do something, like build a fence or fix a car. I used to love to help my dad fix a car. I never really fixed a car. I made my dad take longer fixing a car, and I remember him getting frustrated. So I've tried to remember to be patient. I was building a gate outside our garage to keep the dog out to make a little storage area. and. Uh, it was a Saturday, and I got all the tools. It wasn't much. It was, it was an easy job. I mean, I'm no great builder. It was just a few four-by-fours uh, four in cement and a gate. And Nathan was a few years younger, and he said, Dad, I'm going to help you build the gate. And my immediate response is, no. I want to get it done. And I know it's going to take longer if he's out there helping me. It'd be better if he just do something on his own, and I can do it. But... I knew that 
he wanted to feel like he was part of it. I said, sure, man, help me out. And so he would hold something, and usually he would get distracted in about a second, and he would forget it and drop it and carry it. And it took a lot longer having him help me. And at the end of the day, he would go in and say, I built this fence. He was so proud of himself, and I was proud of him. I was glad to be a partner with him. Now, he thought he had done it all, but I did it all. He just doesn't know it yet. One day I'll tell him. Now, here we are on earth, and we pray, and we talk to God, and we're in partnership, and we're co-laborers with Christ, and God does a great work. And then we'll, we'll see how God has responded and worked according to our prayers, but he had us pray and led us in that relationship so that he could do the work he wanted to do all along. And we'll stand back and go, look at that. I have faith, man. I prayed. When you get to heaven, God will tell you the whole truth. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were partners with him. It was about that much. But isn't it exciting to be a partner with God? And God lets us. And God reveals to him now. Speak to the children of Israel, verse 10, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. So there is an exemption clause for defilement. If it's Passover and you can't help it or you're far away, you can keep it. On the 14th day of the second month, at twilight, they may keep it. So Passover was a month earlier. It was the first month, the month of Nisan. They were allowed to keep it a month later if they were ceremonially defiled, and God would count it as having kept the Passover. At twilight they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinances of Passover, they shall keep it. God did have a set ordinance for the Passover meal. In fact, Jews to this day have a Seder feast. The word Seder is the Hebrew word for order. There's a set order or a set of ordinances they have to keep. And if you've ever gone to one, and we've had a few here, and we're going to have another one this year, the book or the ordinance, the order of service, is called the Haggadah. And you go through prayers and you go through cups of redemption and uh, different glasses of wine are lifted and different things are memorized. But there's a set order and God says back in verse 11 that you eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now if you go to a modern Passover meal, the woman brings out the best tablecloth. They'll wear the best clothes. And there's a plate and on the plate, the special Pesach plate, is, uh, are a, a series of different food items, all very reminiscent of deliverance from slavery. There's a hard-boiled egg on the plate. The egg speaks of the hope of new life. There's a, a bone of a lamb, lamb shank, reminder of the lambs that were slain in Egypt whose blood covered the lintels and doorposts. There's a little vase of vase, vase, vase of salt water. Salt water is to remind them of what? Tears that they shed while slaves in Egypt and to remind them of the Red Sea that parted. Then as it says here, there are bitter herbs to recall the bitter suffering. Then there's this odd mixture, it's real gummy and gooey, called char oset, which is a mixture of apples and nuts and cinnamon and it's real gummy, to remind them of the bricks that the children of Israel made, their forefathers made, while in bondage of Egypt, as they built the treasure cities for the Pharaoh. And then finally, they eat unleavened bread. And only two items are mentioned in this verse, but unleavened bread or the matzah bread is that flat unleavened cake. It's because they didn't have enough time to put leaven to have the dough rise. And so they made flat, it's like, you know, big saltine crackers that are kosher without the salt. Matzah crackers. Now, verse 11 says, On the 14th day of the second month at twilight they may keep it. The twilight, literally in the Hebrew, 
It is between the evenings. Keep in mind that Jewish days don't begin in the morning, they begin at night. Way back in the book of Genesis, it says, and evening and morning were the first day. Not morning and evening, because day begins in a Jewish mind because of creation with the nighttime. So it begins at night, and it continues till the next night. Now, in the Talmud, there is an indication that at one time, between the evenings, began at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, rather than, twi- rather than when the sun sets and you th- see three stars. Because they said when the sun diminishes in its strength, which is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, is when twilight begins until the sun sets the following day. And Josephus tells us that during the temple period, the sacrifices were killed and offered in the temple between the ninth and the 11th hours, between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So it could be that Passover was killed and celebrated a little earlier than some people have thought. Um, The second month is when they were to keep it. The rest of the children of Israel kept it on the 14th day of the first month. Let me remind you of their calendar. The first month was because of the Passover. Do you remember back in Exodus? God said, after they did the Passover deal, He said, this month will be the beginning of months for you. In other words, your year begins after redemption. I like that. I think that's a beautiful picture of redemption. It's a new year for you. Instead of going by the fiscal year or somebody else's calendar, your year will begin at your redemption. That's when life begins. That's when you really start to live, is when you enter into the full blessings of your redemption. If you're a young Christian, you might be thrown when you meet an older Christian. Maybe a 40 or 50-year-old come up to you and say, I'm two years old today. You go, what? Boy, these Christians are nuts. What they're speaking about is their spiritual birthday. They remember back to the time two years ago when they asked Jesus to come and take over, and that's when they started living. And so now life is counted in spiritual years rather than in physical years. Life begins at the time of redemption. Before you came to Jesus Christ, face it, your life was meaningless. You were empty. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That's your whole life. You were lost. If you want to paint an accurate picture, if you're an artist of your past life, get a white canvas and just dump a can of the blackest paint on it. That's your life. And then you might want to start with a streak of light that entered the darkness and then flood the whole canvas with white. That's your new life. You were in darkness. You wandered or meandered, literally. You had no direction. But life began when Jesus Christ came and took took over. So it was the 14th day of the second month because the children of Israel kept it on the 14th day of the first month if they were in the camp. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, verse 15, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting from evening until morning. It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day, which was very good in a desert where there's no trees, no clouds. It was a, uh, a shade, an umbrella. And the appearance of fire by night, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. At the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. A strange way of guidance. A cloud, a pillar. Now, God didn't warn them and say, tomorrow, I'm going to move. Get ready. And there were no brake lights. There were no turning signals. They just had to watch to see where this thing would go. And they pitched their tents. They couldn't settle down and build buildings. They couldn't say, I'm tired of this Bedouin lifestyle. I'm tired of tents. 
I want to enter into a building because by the time they got their first building permit, God would have gone three weeks ago and months ago in this city. So they had to be mobile, portable. And they, they always had to have their eyes fixed. Now, we're going to read in the next chapter where there's a couple trumpets, silver trumpets, that would sound the alarm for the people to gather because Moses and Aaron would be watching this thing to see uh, where it would go. Supernatural guidance. I know you wish for it. I know you'd say, boy, I wish I had one of those. I wish there was just a little cloud outside my door in the morning that would tell me where to go, what to do, where to stop when to move. But you've got something better. You've got something better than a cloud to give you guide, guidance. You have the personal guide himself, the Holy Spirit of God who lives within your heart, who will tell you the word of God. Oh, but I have to just walk by faith and not by sight. That's right. It's more of an adventure. Children of Israel say, oh, it's going over there now. I know we're going to be going that way. It's more of an adventure to just, God, where are you going to take me today? Who, who am I going to speak to? Who will be in my path? There's so many supernatural things that happen out there in the wilderness. Forty years they're out there. It's a long time, but God was supernatural guiding, supernaturally guiding them and supernaturally protecting them, supernaturally giving them food. Manna comes from heaven. Sometimes water would come from a rock. God said in Deuteronomy, for 40 years you were able to wear the same shoes. Your sandals didn't wear out. Isn't that wonderful to have a pair of shoes that would last 40 years? I'm looking at your reaction to that. I'm, thinking, I'm looking at some are going, no, I wouldn't like that. Same fashion for 40 years. I want them to wear out. But God was guiding. I was reading a story about a pilot who had just gotten his pilot's license. And he wasn't that skilled at instrument flying. He had just barely passed and got his instrument certific cert certification. And he uh, was flying in to where he lived, and uh, there was a huge cloud bank, fog bank, that had settled in. He couldn't see anything, and so he knew that he had to land on instruments, and he was scared to death. So as he's coming in for a landing, he's thinking in his mind, because he knows the area of the mountains that are around there, the huge buildings that are downtown, the towers that jut up, and he doesn't know where they are. And right at the right time, a calm but firm voice from the control tower came into his headphones and said, Don't you worry about the obstructions. Just follow the instructions, and we'll take care of the rest. And they guided that guy down. Well, as a Christian, don't take care of the obstructions. Let God take care of them. Just trust Him. Instead of fretting over what could happen, Oh, God, how come there's not a cloud today? Where's the pillar? I want something supernatural. How about letting God guide you naturally, supernaturally? It's still supernatural. God is guiding you. The Holy Spirit is moving. But you just don't see it because you're walking by faith. Well, this covering cloud that we read about in verses 15 through 18 was what most people believe the Shekinah glory of God that eventually when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and came into the land and built the temple that this cloud settled within the tabernacle at the dedication service when Solomon dedicated the temple. The Shekinah glory rested within them. And Paul was speaking about the nation of Israel and why they were different from all of the other nations. And this is what he wrote about in Romans 9. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. To Israel pertain the glory. It resided within the temple itself. So it says that the priests could not stand to minister in the temple as the cloud finally settled in. Now let's look at verse 19. 
And when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud was taken up in the morning, they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained over the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. See, that Moses isn't deciding where they're going to go. Now, if Moses was a type A personality, the kind who had to plan, know everything on a schedule, here's my daytimer. We'll be here a day and then there an hour and I have this going. This, he would have just blown a fuse. He just had to wait and watch and be spontaneous to see where God would move. Be flexible to the moving of the Lord. If it was a day, a month, or a year, they didn't know. God would guide, they would leave. I don't want to press this issue too far, but it should be said that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And because he's the head of his church, he ought to be the one that we consult for the affairs of the church. Sometimes people will get frustrated at me. Well, I thought you were going to plan this. Yeah, I did plan that, but I guess God didn't. Just because I announced that we're praying or looking or thinking about this direction. Listen, I'm not an idiot. Whatever you attain by the flesh, you must maintain by the flesh. If God's in it, it's going to go. If God's not in it, I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And so we see a certain direction. Maybe God wants to do this, and we'll pray about it. And listen, I'm always open to new ideas. And then sometimes we'll move in the direction God will bless, and we'll go for it. And there's other times where we consult and pray, and it's just not in it. We've always wanted to build a school here at the church. It was in our plans. By God's grace, we'll still do it. But all of the plans in the past have been a bit frustrated. We thought we would do it in the past. didn't work. And then we needed more classroom space over here for uh, just our Sunday school. On Sunday, it was so crowded, and there were so many kids in the classroom. And so we thought, we need to expand to give the kids more room on Sundays so that there can be fewer pupils per teacher, and have a better class. So we built new classrooms, thinking we'll be able to use the existing classrooms also for a school. And our architects thought the same thing, no problem. Well, we got it all built with our architect and said, okay, now we want to start a, a Christian school during the day. And so he said, good, that's great. Let's look at it, see what we need to do. And he said, well, with the existing facility that you have, according to the new codes, you can only have 115 kids. But wait a minute, we should be able to have about 500 kids. I mean, this thing will be filled up like this. So we ask him, well, what would it take uh, to change it so that we could have about 500 or, or so kids? He said, well, you could have that many, about 550 kids. But let me run the numbers to see what the code requires, where you need restrooms, and so forth. So they ran the numbers, and they said, to us, for us now to renovate so that it will be good for a day school, It'll cost you about one and a half million dollars. They need elevators. Restrooms have to be placed in a different location. There's so many different requirements. So, listen, we want to wait now on the Lord. We've got 10 acres of land out here. By God's grace, in the future, maybe God will see fit to build a school. But I've had people say, wait a minute, you said we're going to, you promised. No, I didn't promise anything. I said, we're thinking, we'd like to, we're praying about it. But I don't want to put things in concrete that aren't from God, and I'm not going to go against his flow. And so Moses was just waiting on God for this. There's a couple problems that happen to these guys in the wilderness, and I think there are problems as well. I think it's very indicative. One problem is lagging behind God. The other problem is going ahead of God. Now, they did lag behind God. It should have been an 11-day journey. 
to get from where they were to Kadesh Barnea and to enter the land. Should have taken them 11 days. God would have led them through the wilderness. They're in the land. But they lagged behind because of unbelief. Took them 40 years. The other problem is rushing ahead of God. And they did that too. When they got into the land, it's like, man, we've been here 40 years. We're tired of waiting. God gave them Jericho. It was easy. They just walked around it, blew a couple trumpets. The walls fell down. They took the spoils. They thought, oh, this is peanuts. And then they failed to consult God. And they looked at Ai, this little old town just a little bit north. They said, oh, this will be just a cakewalk. And so they said, look, let's keep most of the men here. The city's too small. We're going to waste army men. They need a good night's sleep. few of us will take it. And God allowed the children of Israel to be defeated at Ai because they didn't consult the Lord and because there was sin in the camp. They rushed ahead of God. Sort of like children, right? We can be that way. There's no coincidence they're called the children of Israel. They acted so much like children. The other day, my son said, I want to go into this toy store because I had to do an errand. I said, okay, go into the toy store. Be right out because I'm going to go in and out. Okay, I'm just going to look. Come in. Be right out. Right. I got out, forgot something in the car, went out to the car to get my wallet, went back in the store, so business took longer than usual, came out again, and he wasn't there. Had to go into the store to sort of drag him out. He was lagging behind. But there are other times where he would rush and run ahead and go so fast that he could get hurt. We can make the same mistake, so it's best to just, if you don't know, if you're at a stoplight, and you're not sure which way to go. There's sometimes it's best to wait for a clear signal. Wait until further instructions. And not rush ahead of the Lord. Verse 23. At the command of the Lord they remained and encamped. And at the command of the Lord they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So the Levites would take down the tabernacle. I think it probably took no longer than about 45 minutes with as many people as they had, the carts and the oxen that they had, and they had all of the duties divvied up. They got to work, got it unpacked, got it on wagons, and they went. And they followed the cloud. Now let's look at Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10, we're not going to cover it all. We're going to cover the first part of it and tell you the rest of it for obvious reasons because you've already gone over it, believe it or not. But this is the final preparation for the march into the wilderness. And here in chapter 10, we're going to come to the end of the first section of the book. That is the preparation phase or the organizational phase. And it moves now into phase two, disorganization, where they start venturing out into the wilderness. Let's look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for... The calling the congregation, directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle. But if you blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. This is their communication system. They don't have a PA system. There's three million people, remember. How do you get the signal out to such a large group? They didn't have microphones. They didn't have KNKT radio or, Hi, this is Moses today on your wilderness radio station. And we're about to march because, as you can look outside, the cloud is moving today at 75 degrees and sunny. So they had to communicate to the people. They needed something. And they needed something more than the other trumpets. Remember we read about the shofar? The ram's horn, the shofar, shofar, show good, right? Well, okay. Just a little comic relief, relax. The shofar, or the ram's horn, was to be done by the Levites, but it had a muddled kind of a sound. Whereas the silver trumpet, about two feet long, would have a piercing, clear sound, and more people would be able to hear it. And it would be clearly different. And so they were there for the alarm system, for the gathering of the people, as well as some of the special feast days to sound the alarm. 
If you come to Israel with us this year, we hope to take you by the Temple Institute. They are reconstructing the articles because they believe that God will use them to build another temple in Jerusalem. They believe God has commanded them to do it. And they have built these silver trumpets. And these guys, man, for years have researched the records. Uh, they have taken the silver trumpets uh, from the relief carved out of stone on the Arch of Titus in Rome. When Titus conquered the Jews and paraded through Rome, uh, he made a depiction of conquering this group of people, and they show the altar of incense, and they show the shovel of incense, and they show two trumpets that are crossed. If you go to Rome, look up the Arch of Titus, and you'll see it there. They're about two feet long, made out of solid silver. It cost them $4,000 to make because they had to do it out of a solid piece and hammer it. And they've reconstructed it according to what they believe. Uh, the silver trumpets looked very similar if you've seen the Tutankhamun exhibit, the Egyptian exhibit of King Tut. There are a couple of silver trumpets that were in the archives of his burial chamber, and uh, the trumpets for gathering were very much like that. But, verse 4, if they blow one, then the leaders of the heads of the divisions of Israel shall gather to you. There wasn't to be one trumpet, there was to be two trumpets. Perhaps a pattern. God said, by the mouth of two witnesses, every word will be established. One trumpet given, another trumpet sounded. So it would be a clear and distinct sound for marching. Jesus sent people out two by two. We read about in the book of Revelation chapter 11, there are two witnesses to give a sound to the children of Israel during the tribulation period. So it's unmistakable. The blowing of the trumpet brought the princes together, and then it brought the rest of the people together. Now, I don't want to press an analogy too far. However, this could be very... Well, it could foreshadow our future. One day there will be a trumpet sound, and there will be the gathering together of God's people. Let me read you a few scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Another familiar one is in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the gathering together of the church at the rapture. It's also pictured in Revelation chapter 4, I believe, where the angel, or John says, And after these things I looked up, and a door was opened in heaven, and a voice of one speaking to me, a voice as of a trumpet, saying, Come up here and I will show you things that must take place after this. And he was taken into heaven and gathered together. Now verse 5. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys, and when, they, when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow but not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. These shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will remember, you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over your sacrifices, your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So trumpets were used for special occasion, times of peace, not just an alarm for war. When they had the Passover, tabernacles, Yom Kippur, the festival of booths, they sounded these trumpets. Um, Let me briefly touch on this, and we'll go on. The Jewish calendar, because he talks about days, months, and years. The Jewish month is based upon the lunar month, not a solar month, the movement of the moon. 
which is about 29 and a half days long. The festivals are put on a solar calendar rather than a lunar calendar. If you go by a lunar calendar, you have 12 months of the lunar, uh, 12 lunar months, which is 354 and a third days, which is different from the solar calendar, 365 and a third days. So because of that, to align the solar and the lunar calendars, they added a month. They called it Adar. And when they would throw that month in, it would be a leap year to cover up for the lag time so that the lunar and the solar months would correspond. Now, verse 11, it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month. And so every month, by the way, they have this thing called the Rosh Chodesh, or the head of the month, when the new moon is shown. It came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony, and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now begins the second section of this book. They move from Sidai. Si- Sidai. It's like I have a code. They move from Sinai now toward Kadesh Barnea. And during this time, it's very disorganized and they start complaining. Now, they've been at Sinai for about 11 months, for almost a year. They're ready to move. And so when it's time to move, I'm sure they went, yes. Man, I'm tired of the same old place. Let's get on with it. There was an excitement in the camp. Probably the trumpet sounded. Moses was camped on the east side of the tabernacle. He and Aaron and their families got up first and started moving. The south got up. The sons of Merari. No, that was north. The Gershonites. No, that was west. The Kohathites, that's it. Then the Gershonites. Then the Merariites on the north. And they would all start getting up in their courses and moving. And then the camps of Israel started moving out. Two and a half to three million people marching now toward Kadesh Barnea. Verse 14, the standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to their armies. Over their army was Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Now from verses 14 to verse 28, Israel marches decently in an order, according to their courses, according to the tribes of Israel in the camps, and they go through the wilderness toward Paran. Paran, you may remember, was the place where Ishmael went, the other son of Abraham. And he married an Egyptian woman, and he had 12 sons, which became 12 princes of their own tribes in that area. Now, just as a warning, you're going to meet another group of people. And we're going to quickly go through this and end tonight. But, but skip over to a ch- the next chapter, to verse 4. Go over to chapter 11. Verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? You're now going to find problems from this march all the way through the book. There's problem. The problems come because a mixed multitude is there. Mixed multitude meaning there's an intermarriage between Israelite and Egyptian. So they got one parent perhaps back in Egypt and one out there in the desert. They're Egyptian enough to miss Egypt, but they're Israelite enough to want to go on this march. And there's a struggle between them. This mixed multitude are the grumblers and the complainers within the crowd. And I've learned something about God's people that not much changes. There's also mixed multitude within the church. A foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom. They'll mix with God's crowd and they'll try to be like God's crowd and be like the rest. But when they're with the world's crowd, they talk the world's talk. They do what the world does. And they are the most dangerous group of people in the church. Because they're the ones that start the complaining and the grumbling and start getting others grumbling and complaining like we see here during the Wilderness March, the mixed multitude. Mixed multitude Christians are affected by Christian happenings. They're not consistent. 
wherever their favorite Christian star is appearing or their favorite worldly activity is going on, that's where you'll find them. No consistency in their life. The Bible also has another term for them. Paul called them carnal Christians, and they can be dangerous. Whenever I see a church grow, I think, man, that's exciting. You see many people come, but then you always wonder, how many, Lord, are truly committed to expanding the kingdom of God and wanting the kingdom first above all else? How many are willing to take that step of faith and move? And how many are out there that are the mixed multitude who won't last long? And you might be thinking, yeah, man, let's get rid of all the carnal Christians. Let's just go with the spiritual people. Give it to them. But but, but you can't do that. Because Jesus said that there will always be tares among the wheat. And he gave a parable about that. Where somebody said, hey, well, let's pull up all the tares. He said, no, let's you pull up all the wheat. Let them grow until the final harvest when the Father will come with his angels in judgment. So it's going to happen. But watch out. They're dangerous. Verse 29, Moses said to Hobab, how'd you like to name your son Hobab? The son of Ruel, which is probably an alias for Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. Oh, it it is. It says Moses' father-in-law. We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go. But I will depart to my own land, to my own relatives. So Moses said, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness. And you can be as our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do us, the same we will do for you. Hobab, if, well, it's his brother-in-law, isn't it? Who didn't want to go with him. But Moses is trying to talk him into going. Now, we don't know if he went or not. It just says they went. We don't know if he was included. We presume he was. But why did Moses say that? No, don't go. You can be as our eyes. Look, you know the wilderness better than we do. God said, I'm going to lead you. Just follow the cloud. This is a no-brainer, Mo. It's easy. All you have to do is follow the cloud. When it goes there, you go there. When it goes there, you go there. No big problem. But he says, now, we need eyes for the wilderness, and we want you to be our guide. Maybe just following the same mistake that many church leaders follow. Oh, I don't want you to leave our church, so I'll put you immediately in a leadership position so you'll feel welcomed and warm, and we really need you. Instead of watching Instead of waiting on God to see what gifts emerge, instead of seeing the spiritual nature and the commitment toward a small group fellowship, just stick them in leadership. It's always a mistake. I think it was a mistake for Moses to say, you'll be as our eyes. Hey, God wanted to be the guide. He wanted to be the boss man in the camp. He was guiding them. Moses didn't need to say, hey, come help us out. We need your help. Often I think God will eliminate all of our crutches so that we can't rely on anything else. Have you ever wondered, man, I've tried everything. Nothing's worked. I guess I'm going to have to trust God. I think God is in the habit of trying to pull out every crutch, human crutch, so that you learn to live trusting God. So it'll be more second nature than a last resort. That's what the Red Sea was all about, wasn't it? They were hemmed in on every side. They couldn't go left or right because of the mountains. They couldn't go back because the Egyptians were following them. They couldn't go forward because there was a Red Sea, they thought. And God said, stand still and see the salvation of God. And God made a way when there was no way. And I think God purposely hemmed them in. Verse 33, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. 
Three days journey, so far not a problem. They've been aching to go. They've been 11 months sitting still, preparing. Now they've got down the preparation, and it's time to go. These three days were awesome. But soon, in the very next chapter, in the very first verse, it ends, and they start complaining. Moses comes up with this poem. Perhaps God gives it to him. You could call it the battle cry of Moses. When it's time to march, he says, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be defeated. What I like about this is that Moses sees the enemies of Israel as God's enemies and the camp of Israel as God's people. So he identifies with God. I think that's always a safe place, don't you? Because if they're God's enemies, God is going to defeat them. If you know that God has called you into something, and if you're led by God, and then if you're being opposed by man, then those people who oppose you are fighting against God. Wouldn't you rather let God defend you than you defend yourself? How did the apostles pray in the book of Acts when they were threatened by the hierarchy in Jerusalem? They got together and they prayed. They said, oh, Lord, you're God. You made heaven and earth to see everything that is in them, everything that is under them. You spoke by the mouth of your prophet. Why did the kings of the earth gather together, imagine vain things? They've... And then he said, truly against your holy child Jesus have they gathered together. They're fighting you, God. I'm not worried. Now, stretch out your hand and work miracles in the name of Jesus because they're fighting against you. So, Lord, sick them. You get them. You fight them. And Moses identifies with God and he says, let your enemies be scattered. And then finally, return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. I think when we pray... We should adjust our perspective. I think that's what prayer does. Don't you? Don't you come in prayer and at first you're defeated and then you think, wait a minute, I'm talking to God here. He's like the creator of heaven and earth. He like made everything. And if I can align myself with God and come into God's purpose, I've got it made. Things look so much bigger until we measure them next to God. And when we measure them next to God and His power, it's interesting how they have a tendency to shrink. We look at a formidable enemy like an incurable disease. And God might be taking the person home to heaven. It could be in His will. But, at the same time, cancer is not too big of an enemy for God. An incurable disease is not too big of an enemy for God. God can speak the word still today and his servants can be healed. God can touch and utterly, totally transform. And we hear the word, we go, it's cancer or it's, it's that disease. Oh man, it's lost. But then you put that disease next to God and it seems to get so small. Or you have a debt and it's huge. God... I owe $20,000. I'm sunk. I can't pay it off. Why, oh Lord, this is too big of an enemy. Now think about it in God's perspective. God, you made heaven and earth, and all you owe is $20,000. It's not too big for you. You own a cattle on a thousand hills. That's why... I get bugged when people beg for money with God's programs in mind because it makes God out to be a pauper. Get it in perspective. Get God's enemies in perspective. A few weeks ago when we were on our way over to Iraq, on the way over we all met in England, so one day we went into London. We walked through Westminster Abbey. I don't know if you've ever been there. It is breathtaking. You walk into this huge church and it's, it's a jaw dropper. It's huge. It's, the ceilings are just expansive. And you see the plaque to Winston Churchill and you see the grave of some of the great missionaries of the past. David Livingstone and others. People who are buried there and it's wow. And it's very ornate. 
And I was reminded of a family that walked into Westminster Abbey that I heard about. He was just elected to the British Parliament. He was a big wig in London. He was so excited celebrating his new election to the Parliament. He walked in with his little daughter. The little daughter just looked around and looked at her dad, looked around, looked at her dad. And he said, Honey, I can't help but wonder, what are you thinking? She said, Daddy, I was thinking how big you seem at home and how small you seem in here. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. Oh, my daddy's so big, he's so important. But in here, he's, he's pretty tiny. Now, the children of Israel are going to meet some pretty formidable enemies at Kadesh Barnea. And they're going to say, they, they seem like giants in our sight. It won't be till 38 years after that when they get into the land and Joshua is there and sends two spies into Jericho and they come back and the people of Jericho all along have said, we have heard about your God and we were grasshoppers in your sight. Now the children of Israel said that. We are grasshoppers in their sight. They are giants in our sight. Whereas the people of Canaan, because God had gone before them, reversed it and thought the children of Israel were giants and they were small if they only would have trusted God, if they only would have kept their perspective. And now we get into that second phase. We'll begin it really next week in chapter 11 as we hear the complaints. Let's pray. Lord, we think about our week, our individual situations, the enemies that surround us, and we have come to rest in the arms of a loving God. And as we see what's coming on the horizon this week, no doubt there will come things we never even planned. It will just happen. We want to be able to declare, rise up, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from you. Lord, we pray that we would move when you move, stop when you stop, not be presumptuous, not say we know when we don't, wait upon you, and live that life of faith one day at a time, one step at a time. I pray, Lord, that you would bless these, your people who have gathered tonight, with the knowledge of God that the lessons we have learned tonight would carry them through the week tomorrow and the next day, that something just tonight that they have heard would be of important use in the week ahead. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us as we keep our priorities of spending time with you this week. And now, Lord, as the service ends and we meet friends, May we edify them, Lord, and draw them closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This 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 name.